0: Last episode, we talked about the eight years building up to this war. But until the early morning of February 24th, Moscow time, we didn't know for sure that Putin would move into Ukraine. And then Putin started to speak. I and probably millions of other people around the world scrambled to find a live feed of the speech and watched him declare what he called a special military operation. I But we didn't have to wait long to find out what Putin meant, because as soon as he stopped speaking, there were explosions in Kyiv and all around the country. We heard the sound of explosions here in Kiev. First of all, three large, distinct explosions in the distance. All of Ukraine was under attack. If you woke up and turned on the news, it was clear we were in a new era.
1: We wake up this morning
0: to a war in Europe. Ukraine is now a nation at war. Just hours ago, Russian troops hit Ukraine by air, land, and sea. President Vladimir Putin warning other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action will lead to, quote, consequences they have never seen. I'm Dave Lawler, the world editor at Axios. Last episode, I drew on dozens of interviews to explain how Vladimir Putin came to power. Today, I'll pull from my reporting and that of my colleagues to explain why the morning of February 24th catalyzed an explosive chain of events with consequences for Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, his country, Russia, and the world. I'll focus on key speeches from world leaders, the actions those speeches set in motion, and what we're reading between the lines. I'll be joined by my colleagues Margaret Tolov, Axios Politics Managing Editor.
2: In some ways. President Biden really couldn't have been better prepared for this moment. But in other ways, he was at a huge disadvantage.
0: And climate and energy reporter
3: Andrew Friedman. This conflict is setting in motion a dramatic escalation in the clean
0: energy transition. This is how it happened. Putin's invasion, part two, the consequences. The very same moment Putin was starting to speak on the morning of the 24th, there was an emergency UN Security Council hearing. And this meeting was chaired by Russia. We are here tonight to call on Russia to avert war. Toward the end, the Ukrainian ambassador completely lost patience with the proceedings. Because it's too late, my dear colleagues, to speak about de-escalation. He directly addressed his Russian counterpart. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell. Ambassador. This meeting showed in real time that the U.S. and Europe were moving together and moving from warning Russia to hitting back. There was another speech that morning shortly before Putin's that I keep coming back to. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the Russian people in Russian, told them he'd done everything he could to prevent war, asked them to do everything in their power to stop it, but told them. Quote, when you will be attacking us, you will see our faces, not our backs, our faces. I keep coming back to that line, you will see our faces, when we see footage of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians alike facing the Russian military head-on. It's clear now that Putin was envisioning a rapid advance on Kiev, to take the city in a matter of days and force a capitulation from the Zelensky government. But Ukraine has not fallen that easily, and Zelensky has continued to show his face. He's become a living symbol of the Ukrainian resistance. As soon as the Russian attacks began, so did the consequences. Sanctions on Russian banks and oligarchs came first. There were also export controls placed on things like semiconductors and other key technologies. And then we started to get announcements of weapon shipments to Ukraine, including from countries like Germany that had previously refused to send weapons. It wasn't just nation states. Companies like Apple quickly pulled out. The country was becoming an international pariah, and Russia's economy was increasingly getting cut off from the rest of the world. For the first week of the crisis, only one thing appeared untouchable. Russia's oil and gas which are the lifeblood of its economy, and crucial in particular in Europe. As sanctions escalated, so did Putin's actions. He'd hinted at Russia's nuclear arsenal when he warned Western countries not to interfere in his operation. And two days later, he put his nuclear forces on high alert. NATO member countries have been clear that they will not intervene militarily in Ukraine. But there are diplomatic efforts underway to avoid a years-long conflict. Putin's laid out some conditions for a ceasefire, namely that Ukraine never join NATO and surrender any claims to Crimea or the Eastern Republics. But Putin is not a trustworthy interlocutor. He's already failed to keep his word about honoring safe evacuation corridors for civilians and U.S. officials doubt he's seriously looking for an off-ramp. This all puts that much more pressure on sanctions. So there's a question of what's left to sanction and what the goal of those sanctions should be. To get into the options ahead and the choices and risks President Biden is assessing, here's my colleague, Margaret Tolliff.
2: I'm Margaret Tolliv, and I've been covering Joe Biden for nearly two decades. I've covered him as a senator and as vice president and as president, And in that time, I've traveled with him around the U.S., but also around the world. This isn't Joe Biden's first rodeo with Russia. He was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1972. He served on that Foreign Relations Committee for decades during the Cold War. And, of course, he was vice president when Vladimir Putin moved to annex Crimea back in 2014. I was covering the White House at the time, and there are a couple of pivotal moments that I have been thinking back on. The first was Biden's trip to Warsaw and to Vilnius. He met with leaders from Poland and the Baltics, and he made a speech that was intended to make the U.S. stance on Russia's actions clear.
1: We stand resolutely with our Baltic allies in support of Ukrainian people and against Russian aggression.
2: And by the time the Munich Security Conference rolled around months later in 2015, he had shaped a lot of his thinking on this.
1: What happens there will resonate well beyond Ukraine. It matters to all, not just in Europe, but around the world.
2: So, in some ways, President Biden really couldn't have been better prepared for this moment. But in other ways, he was at a huge disadvantage. Think of the Trump years. They had divided the U.S. internally. They had freight alliances with Western allies. They sent a lot of mixed signals about what the U.S. would actually do if Putin made a move inside his region. Then there was German energy policy. It complicated everything. Germany was already reliant on Russian gas and building a pipeline, that Nord Stream 2 project, that was only going to increase its dependency. And of course, there was COVID. Biden took office under a pandemic. It was public enemy number one. But by the fall of 2021, it was clear to President Biden that Vladimir Putin was testing the limits of the US and the West. And as February 24th approached and intelligence warnings became more dire, as this invasion looked more and more inevitable. Joe Biden prepared for his biggest test on the world stage. —
1: Do I think he'll test the West, test the United States and NATO as uh, significantly as he can? Yes, I think he will. But I think he'll pay a serious and dear price for it. —
2: At the start of the invasion, President Biden knew what was off the table for war-weary America. We had just gotten out of two decades of war in Afghanistan, and he made this pledge The U.S. was not going to send troops into Ukraine.
1: Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in
2: Ukraine. That left these options, backing Ukraine with weapons and intelligence and hitting Russia with crippling sanctions. The only question was, would the U.S. have to go it alone? Or could President Biden and the West move as one?
1: Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions— and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia.
2: Sanctions are this kind of halfway in-between measure, somewhere between soft diplomacy and actual war, right? They're a combination of a punishment and a negotiating lever. The goal of sanctions is to get the country that's being sanctioned to change its behavior by denying it access to money, to power, by hurting its economy, by turning its own people against it.  —
1: This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. —
2: Putin has essentially said sanctions are like a declaration of war. And when you look at these most recent sanctions, you get a sense of why he's so angry. —
1: It'll strike a blow to their ability to continue to modernize their military. —
2: Russia has now overtaken Iran as the world's most sanctioned country. It's been slapped with nearly 2,800 new sanctions just since the invasion. And the total number of sanctions Russia now faces worldwide is more than 5,500, according to the Castellum AI dashboard. This is a lot of sanctions. But the question is, what does it all add up to? In the last couple of decades, since 9-11, there's been an explosion in the use of sanctions internationally. But along with that have come a lot of questions about whether they're effective, whether they hurt the power that's the bad actor, or are they more likely to hurt the civilians inside that country? It's harder to use sanctions to intimidate countries that are nuclear powers, because of course nukes are the biggest bargaining chip, even if no one says it out loud. And it's also true that sanctions can take a long time to really kick in for the impact really to be felt. And in a situation like this invasion, Ukraine simply may not be able to hold out long enough. When any country, or even a group of allies, goes after another country with sanctions, it puts pressure on that country to look elsewhere to make up the lost ground. China may swoop in, or India may be tempted to do more business with Russia. Ultimately, for sanctions to work, the leader who's being sanctioned has to have a price, has to be willing to cut a deal. And that's really the biggest question. When it comes to Vladimir Putin, what's his price? What kind of a deal, if any deal, is he willing to cut? For President Biden, this is where the limits of sanctions are exposed. What if Vladimir Putin has no price? What if he continues to slaughter Ukraine's civilians? What if he moves beyond Ukraine's borders? What if he moves on NATO territory and the U.S. has no choice but to step in? In 2022, what would a full-scale war between nuclear powers even look like? Is it boots on the ground? Or would it be an intense, modern technological cold war like nothing we knew in the 60s or the 70s or the 1980s? Is the U.S. power grid safe? Is the U.S. financial system safe? Could Americans be turned against one another? Could there be an upheaval in the next elections? Two weeks into Vladimir Putin's invasion, The focus is still, as it should be, on what this means for Ukraine and for Europe. But President Biden's most important job is to protect the security of the United States of America. The question President Biden and his aides are asking themselves each day, is America ready for what could be coming?
0: We'll be right back, and we'll dig into why Russia's dominance in the energy market has complicated efforts to cut off its economy. Welcome back. We just discussed one of the main reasons it's so hard to push back against Russia, namely that Russia is a nuclear power. The other main reason is that Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of energy. To explain why ending energy reliance on Russia is so complicated, here's my colleague Andrew Friedman, author of Axios Generate.
3: I'm Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter for Axios, and I've been following how this is playing out in the energy markets. It's hard to overstate how much the world relies on Russia for energy. Russia is the world's third largest oil producer behind the US and Saudi Arabia. It's the world's largest exporter of oil to the global markets. And it provides a lot of Europe's natural gas supplies. About 45% of their gas comes from Russia. If you're filling up your car and you're looking at the price of gas and you're thinking, oh my, that is a lot higher than the last time I filled gas up. Part of that cost is because Russia has an outsized influence on oil and gas markets globally. What's going on with Russia and the war in Central Europe is that it's introducing a lot of uncertainty about how much of Russia's oil and gas will get out to the market. And it's already a tight market. There's already a very close match between supply and demand because we're coming out of a COVID-induced recession. So once you introduce anything else on top of that at this point, it's kind of game over when it comes to how high prices can go. It just so happens that if you're president of the United States, one of the things that you have the least control over is the price of gas at the pump. Yet one of the things that you are most blamed for is the price of gas at the pump. The president really doesn't have that many levers to pull. They can release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a supply of oil kept in case of an emergency stored deep underground in salt caverns of Louisiana and Texas. They've done that twice. That can help calm markets down, at least temporarily. Or they can go to the countries with excess capacity to quickly ramp up their output So the countries that have excess capacity to ramp up their energy production really quickly are also countries with a complicated history presenting some issues for the United States. The leaders of those countries do not have good relationships with the United States. For example, in the case of Venezuela and Iran, they're under sanctions. And with Saudi Arabia, there's been a frayed relationship after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The fact that the US is having to go to these governments, that they've been trying to pressure into changing course and say, hey, never mind, we actually want to do business with you after all, is kind of a black eye on the administration. And Press Secretary Jen Psaki has been asked about that.
2: And what was the third country you mentioned, sorry?
0: Uh, Well, Venezuela, Iran, and Saudis.
3: The administration is trying to get America to a place where it doesn't have to turn or rely on any unsavory government for relatively cheap energy supplies.
1: We will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war.
3: Thirteen days into this, President Biden did make the decision to ban all Russian energy imports.
1: The United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy.
3: That same day, the Europeans announced a, a seismic shift in their energy policies.
1: I've had numerous conversations over the last three months with our European friends of how they have to be, wean themselves off of Russia, Russian oil.
3: They are going to try to get off of Russian energy, so we're talking natural gas oil, coal, etc. well before 2030. And to the extent possible, they think they can do it, about 75% of it, within the next year. So in starting this conflict with Ukraine, one could look at it in a certain way, that, that Russia essentially has lost its biggest energy market, which was Europe. This conflict is setting in motion a dramatic escalation in the clean energy transition for Europe. One that wouldn't have been thought possible before the fighting started. One that would bypass projects like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany. Now that's scrapped. Europe has realized its overdependency on Russia as its main energy supplier. And they're working to get off of that as quickly as possible. In the US, the situation is a little bit more murky. The US doesn't have a dependency on one single supplier of energy. America produces a lot of fossil fuels at home, but high energy prices could spur massive investments into clean energy in the United States. There are huge stakes for energy and what happens with energy going forward. The question of how quickly do we transition to clean energy is on the table. That has repercussions for the severity of global warming, as well as for energy prices. I think most energy experts foresee clearly how this is going to play out in Europe and really push them to be leaders on clean energy. There's a really big question mark on what happens in the United States, there is a very big political debate that's kind of bubbling up between the drill baby drill crowd.
1: They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year.
3: And the crowd that says we need more oil now, but we need to transition into clean energy as quickly as possible. And Biden's trying to walk a line between addressing the very real need to cut energy prices for ordinary consumers right now, and to speed up the clean energy transition in order to address global warming over the long term.
1: It should motivate us to accelerate the transition of clean energy.
0: I'm Dave Lawler. Here's the bottom line. Putin's invasion has already changed the world. It's brought Europe and the U.S. back together in ways nothing else did. It's isolating one of the world's biggest powers and choking its economy. It's threatening to bring back the Iron Curtain, just shifted eastward from where it was during the Cold War. It's also sparked one of the fastest-growing refugee crises in modern memory as Ukrainians, but also pro-democracy Russians, try to flee their homes to safety. And as Russia's economy withers under sanctions, more Russians will likely try to leave. We know it's changing the world beyond Russia and Ukraine, but we don't know how quite yet. This conflict is a global flashpoint for democracy and whether it can be defended. It's a test case for other countries interested in redrawing the world's borders, particularly as China weighs an incursion into Taiwan. And there's something else to consider when it comes to China. This is the biggest test yet for the strategic relationship Beijing and Moscow have been building for years. In fact, it's forcing countries all over the world to pick sides. And then, of course, there are the stakes for the global energy economy and our planet. We may look back and realize this moment accelerated a clean energy transition, which could reduce the severity of global warming. Finally, there's Vladimir Putin. This war could embolden him further to reach beyond Ukraine and even risk a war with NATO and the U.S. Or it could weaken him at home and abroad, and even push him out of power. This war started with a declaration from Vladimir Putin. <laughs> No one knows where it's going to end. How it happened, Putin's invasion will be taking a short break, but Axios will continue to follow this conflict and its ramifications. For more of my reporting and analysis, subscribe to Axios World. For daily podcast episodes, and I'll join some of them, check out Axios today, hosted by Nyla Budu. If you found this series informative so far, we hope you'll take a moment to write us a review. How It Happened, Putin's Invasion was produced by Naomi Shaven, with help from Sabina Singani. Julia Redpath is our executive producer. Allison Snyder is our editor. Sarah Kehulani Gu is our editor in chief. Mixing, sound design, and music supervision by Alex Sugiura. Additional scoring and sound design by Ben O'Brien. Additional mixing by Jake Cherry. Original music by Michael Hanf. Special thanks to Margaret Tolliv, Andrew Friedman, Zach Basu, our Axios Today colleagues, and to Axios co-founders Jim Vandahigh, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz. I also want to thank our colleagues outside of the newsroom who worked with us to make this season possible, especially Lucia Oreharena. I'm Dave Lawler. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.